You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to ODI. My name is Marta Foresti. I'm one of the managing directors here at ODI, and I, as some of you know, I've been sort of leading our work on migration and development over the last um, few years. Um, it is a real pleasure to welcome to ODI today Louise Arbour, who is the United Nations Secretary General Special Representative on International Migration. We're just joking about you know, how, how many acronyms you can you know, work out with these letters, and UNSRRG, but I'm going to try to avoid that. I've learned that lesson. Um, uh, welcome to all of you to our Global Challenges event. We're here in the room today. This is the event ODI, in the event series at ODI. Um, where we discuss, it tackles some of the most critical issues facing the world and when we invite leaders like Louise uh, to join us, to provoke us all with uh, keynote speeches that we then uh, use as a base to have uh, a, a conversation with all of you in the room, but also with our online audiences. I think we have about 100 people following this event online and let me encourage all of them to um, pose questions to Louise and the panel um, later when we begin um, the, broader, um, the broader conversation. Um, this is uh, obviously a public event um, on the record, so please do tweet, um, do help us spread the words. We just had a discussion uh, half an hour ago about how important it, it is uh, on these issues of, uh, on global migration. We all make an effort to talk to, to everybody and to improve the conversation around the world and to those who genuinely want to understand better. Um, what can be done around uh, migration. Um, use the hashtag global challenges, but also hashtag for migration, which is widely used in the context of the global compact and ODI, um, the ODI dev Twitter handle. We'll also be tweeting live from the room um, as we proceed. So um, I probably don't need to tell you that migration continues to be at the top of the global political agenda, as well as to be a very hot topic in a number of countries um, uh, in, in Europe um, in particular. Um, the, as in, in 2016, uh, member states, states from around the world came together during the General Assembly of the UN in New York, and they agreed the New York uh, Declaration on Refugees and Migrants. And as part of that declaration, and... Apologies to go into a little bit of a UN um, speech. Um, the decision was made, the commitment was made to develop a new global compact on migration, as well as one on, uh, on refugees. So we're going to focus particularly on the one on migration today. Uh, we're going to hear about from Louise on um, where we are with the development of that global compact. Um, but let me offer, to begin with, some um, like personal reflection on it. Is that I, this is not the first time that I witness um, some of these global events and UN processes. And obviously, they, you know, we are all, um, you know, they all have um, pros and cons. They, have, they present opportunities and challenges. Obviously, global agreement in the space of migration is, uh, is not an easy uh, task. Um, however, I am convinced, I'm persuaded, this is a pretty unique opportunity that we've got, precisely because it's such a complex issue to be handled um, in different parts of the world, to actually generate a genuine discussion and a genuine conversation and a platform for future engagement on an issue uh, as important as, as this. I think a lot will depend on what will actually be negotiated and agreed by member states in this, um, in this compact, but a lot more will rest on our collective capacity to the, make the most of this moment 
uh, to change the conversation and to have more realistic and pragmatic ways to handle uh, the future of global migration. So in the first hour of today's event, we will have a keynote um, speech by, um, by Louise in a minute, followed by a panel um, discussion, a conversation uh, with, um, with our panel here today. So let me briefly introduce the panel before I hand over um, to Louise, who I'll also briefly introduce. Um, first of all, let me welcome um, from the beautiful city of Rome, um, Emma Bonino, who is the, um, of course, was a former Minister of Foreign Affairs in Italy, but also she was um, a former EU Commissioner on Humanitarian Affairs, and at the time I was actually working in, in Brussels. And let me also say that for all of us Italian who, with an interest in politics, Emma is a bit of a legend. Um, she's been um, an activist. She has been behind most, some of the most important civic battles in Italy and elsewhere uh, over the years. And I am truly delighted to welcome you virtually uh, 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 to ODI um, from, your, um, home in uh, from your home in Rome that I know has a beautiful terrace, beautiful plants um, that uh, <laughs> the FT has been uh, writing about to say how important Emma is for all of us. Um, we then have the Honourable Ratna Omidvar, who is an independent senator of Ontario, appointed by um, Prime Minister Trudeau, um, and, and also the co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Migration. And Ratna has been working again as an activist, as a thinker in this space in Canada and elsewhere for many years. So we are delighted to welcome you here and to have the perspectives of somebody that comes from a country that has so much to offer and so much positive messages around issues of migration. The, panel will be chaired um, by Razia Iqbal, who is a presenter of news, on News Hours on the BBC World Service, and, um, and she will be um, both chairing the discussion with the panel and then have a conversation with all of you and with the um, audience online. And now to Louise. Um, this is when everybody says, oh, Louise Khalid does not need, you know, the, everybody knows who she is, she does not need an introduction. But let me remind you about who Louise is and what she has done. She has served as Johan I Commissioner for Human Rights, um, and also she was the Chief Prosecutor of the International Criminal Tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and she contributed to bring to justice some well-known war criminals. Um, Louise was appointed by the Secretary-General Antonio Guterres as a special representative of international migration. I think about a, is that a year ago now, Louise? A bit? Not quite. Not quite. <laughs> uh, he's been around these debates for a long time. And I cannot think of anybody better than Louise to help us marshal us through this challenging but terribly important political process that we are about to engage with. So Louise, without further ado, please welcome to ODI. Thank you. Very much. I'm very happy to be with you today, and uh, I look forward to a really interesting conversation, not only with the panel, but with uh, all of you. I have to say ODI has been very active, has made very uh, important contributions to the, the preparatory process uh, that is just about to wrap up uh, towards the adoption of a global compact on migration, and ODI's intellectual and very policy-smart contributions to date really have set a gold standard for contribution by the multi-stakeholders engaged in this process. Um, in addition, I think I have to say Marta herself did a fantastic job as a thematic expert in one of our um, thematic sessions that is part of the formal process, and in fact, she made such an impression. She's been invited to come and uh, 
moderate a key session that will be held in uh, Mexico in early December. This will be the stock-taking meeting that will then uh, be a launching pad for the two ambassadors who are the co-facilitators of this process and who will be producing the zero, what's called a zero draft of the Global Compact. So, Marta, thank you very much for this invitation and your work to date. So let me just maybe share with you a few observations that I can extract from the process so far. I actually was appointed last March. I know it seems like an eternity to you. Imagine what it feels to me. And we've had a series of thematic consultations and regional ones. So I'd like to just share with you today just a few ideas that I've been able to extract from the process so far. Um, particularly the regional consultations have brought home to me the variety and the complexities of the ways in which migration issues present themselves on the global scene. From Filipino women migrant workers in Gulf countries to regularization exercises in Morocco, they are a multiplicity of both problems and solutions that are easily obscured when a purely Western-centric point of view dominates the analysis. Even within the West, emphasis moves from preoccupations with what are called sometimes flows of migrants into Europe to stocks of irregular migrants, for instance, in the United States. And I pause here to comment on the use of language through which we perpetuate very unhelpful stereotypes, if not worse. And in this field, it's quite shocking <coughs> to see how the use of language in a very invidious way has sometimes really poisoned the public debate. Uh, just this expression, stock and flow, which is, I understand, it's a technical expression used by population experts. And I really do believe that this one is purely innocent. But I can't well help be aware that it analogizes migrants to merchandise or stocks, um, livestock, actually. There are many other expressions that I believe are less innocent, but very deliberately invidious. And they do actually aim and sometimes succeed at poisoning public opinion. Illegal rather than irregular migrant, I think now has really been pushed back, but was the dominant uh, expression used until quite recently. Expressions such as hordes, waves, swarms, rather than simply large numbers. Contract workers rather than migrant workers, which very conveniently obscures the vulnerabilities that come from being a foreigner. So this is just a side issue, but I think in this field, we need to be very alive of uh, the public discourse being at times entirely uh, hijacked by this kind of vocabulary. So approaching the global compact as a truly global issue will be one of its many challenges, but also one of its key opportunities. The challenge will be to be relevant to all without drowning in detailed specificities. And the opportunity will be to rise above the exaggerated importance of issues that are time and place sensitives and to put in place a framework that will, will serve all, all of us well now and in the future. So a second observation on my part is how the approach to migration through the Global Compact so far has recentered the conversation 
importantly so, around development issues, rather than around almost exclusively security concerns, where it occupied, I believe, a somewhat exaggerated space, at least in many corners of Western public opinion, certainly until recently and maybe still to date. So development is now, I think, the proper anchor for uh, moving forward on this issue. And finally, before I return to some of these development-related considerations, and in line with my previous comments about the choice of vocabulary, I believe that the last year or so has contributed to the beginning, the beginning of a change of narrative. In this field, as in many others, reality is much, much better than perception. And I think this reality has to take hold if we're going to succeed in the global compact and changing the narrative or at least having a more balanced narrative is going to be very much part of the exercise. And this reality, I think, is gaining ground. Outside informed circles such as this one, knowledge about the impact of remittances, for instance, is often very limited. And yet, when I, like I'm sure many of you, have opportunity to discuss this issue with political decision makers, for instance, I found that some were not particularly well informed about the importance of many aspects of migrations, particularly this one. For instance, did they know that $420 billion in remittances that migrants make to developing countries in 2016 represented some 15% of their earnings and about three times the total amount of official development aid? Often, they didn't know that. Well, then surely they knew that remittances often amount to more than 20% of GDP in some countries. Really, they said? Had they considered that uh, what this impact would be if we could actually reduce the cost of transfer of these remittances from the current average of about 7.5% to 3%, as we've already committed to do? No idea. And they often had no that idea that we actually know how we could do that, that is, reduce the cost of transfer of money, uh, and that actually there's a lot that they could do themselves as political decision makers. Increase competition amongst money transfer providers and reduce the oversight requirements, which as part of money laundering and financing of terrorism preoccupations, have actually taken the banks out of a business that is too cumbersome to be lucrative. This is something that political decision makers, you would have thought, should be right on top of. And did they know, while we're at it, that if we could improve financial awareness on the parts of the recipients of these individually modest sums of money, the impact on developing countries would be even greater? If they didn't know everything I've mentioned up to now, there's a good chance they didn't know that part either. But I believe that this is now starting to be good news because this reality, amongst others, brings the conversation about migration to a much, much better place. And the more we talk about these issues, this reality, the more I think we have a chance um, of getting policy uh, uh, choices to be made, not on the basis of mythology and perception, but on reality. And in making sound policy, the foundations have to be facts. 
not myths, not stereotype, not perception, but reality. So let me turn briefly to the subject of development more broadly. The relationship between migration and development is at once obvious and deceptive. We have an immensely useful starting point, I believe, as migration is not only explicitly recognized as part of the Sustainable Development Goals, the big United Nations development agenda, but it is actually recognized as a tool to achieve maybe, from my point of view, the most surprisingly universally accepted development objective, that is, to reduce inequalities within and between countries, that is, SDG number 10. So here is the link between migration and development. We will facilitate safe, orderly, and regular migration as a way of reducing inequalities within and between countries. That's the framework. And that much is already very clearly stated. What is not always so clearly stated, but is often implied in many uh, policy discussions about migration is that development is good because it will reduce migration. So you might ask, well, which, which one is it? I would suggest the following. Improved inclusive development may in time change the configuration of migratory patterns. As people are lifted out of poverty, their life choices will improve including their choice whether to migrate, either to improve their skills or to seek greater economic opportunities abroad. Their departure then opens work opportunities for others in their country of origin, thereby accelerating, alongside with increased financial and other often intangible transfers of benefit, the whole development potential. And as long as their migration takes place in a well-regulated environment, it also benefits countries of destination, thereby contributing to their own development. I should point out that in developed countries, development is usually called prosperity. <laughs> Further development progress, therefore, offers more opportunities at home and may, may, in time, reduce the impetus to leave. It may also serve as an incentive to return for the many who will by then have lived and worked abroad and who may see opportunities to transfer their skills back home. This may also be the case for some who may wish to return in retirement, particularly if they can carry with them their accrued benefits, such as pension or medical insurance, all benefits that they will have earned abroad. So it can go either way, depending on a wi wide range of contextual factors. Development may increase or it may reduce migration at any given point in any given country. What matters is that migration be managed as a way of maximizing its development and other positive economic impacts, amongst other objectives, some objectives being more personal to migrants than others. So in order to do so, we must be true to the mantra, migration by choice, not by necessity. But we must be also very clear about what that has to mean. Reduce necessity, increase choices. We should not obscure the reality of what we really mean when we say everyone has the fundamental right to leave their country because it's also clear that nobody has any fundamental right to go anywhere else. 
these have to be supported by policy choices. Of course, there's much more behind the pressing need for a global compact on migration than migration's undoubted development potential. It will have to deal with the challenge of so-called mixed flows. We begin to anticipate more keenly some of the likely impacts of climate change, acknowledge the need for greater efforts to uphold labor standards, and recognize that in managing more effectively the integration of long-term migrants in host communities, the needs of those communities too must be addressed. And I think on this, we have to be very conscious that migrants uh, often settle in parts of our communities uh, where people are often almost as marginalized as the migrants themselves for different reasons. And I think uh, policies of inclusions have to be very attentive to their well-being as well. But even as we as stripped down to a development question, the role migration plays is one that is unquestionably a positive one. I hope that these brief introductory remarks to our conversation today will have convinced you, assuming you needed convincing, that the need for a global compact for international migration on human mobility is self-evident and long overdue. A successful compact has the potential to have a meaningful impact on the lives of millions of migrants, millions of others who live in their new and their old communities. The compact itself will be the result of many months of governmental negotiations that will start, as I said, early next year, based on the zero draft, which will be presented at the end of January. It should be agreed by July next year and will be formally adopted at an intergovernmental conference in December 2018. So the months ahead provide us with a unique opportunity to change the narrative further from perception to reality, mobilizing open-minded citizens everywhere towards harnessing the benefits of human mobility for the greater good. I hope to see all of you very engaged in that process, and I look forward to our conversation today. Thank you. Louise, thank you very much indeed. Uh, I'd like to add uh, my welcome to, um, to all of you. Um, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Before we open it up to the panel, Louise, I just want to throw a couple of questions to you. It, the, the heart of what you were talking about, the, the relationship between migration and, and development, several times in that address you talked about it being the, the way in which it would manifest itself in time over a period of time. And I wonder if, if, if you could just say a little bit about the very real fact that politics very often gets in the way of this in every single country, that in most democratic countries, politicians tend to think very much in the short term. And I wonder how encouraged you have been in the initial conversations that you've had that, that policymakers and politicians are willing to think in the long term. Well, I think it's, it's an easy enough uh, approach for, for policy analysts and policy makers. The real challenge is for political decision makers who I think always put as part of their ultimate position uh, electoral considerations. And I understand that. I, I understand uh, very often the call for uh, compromise so as not to jeopardize what they believe is the necessity for them to be reelected to do better in the longer term. On this kind of issue, 
I think it is, when I talked about changing the narrative, I think it's critical, particularly in the course of this coming year, as we talk about the Global Compact, at least to have public conversations that will make it easier for political decision makers to do things that are hard in the short term but are critically important in the medium and longer term. And if we start to inject demographic projections, for instance, labor market needs in many, many parts of the world, not to well, on the demographics, I mean, we, their projections for growth uh, in different parts of the world speaks for itself. There's nothing that developed countries can do really in the short, medium, frankly, successfully in the long term to change their um, fertility and mortality rates. The only thing that will ensure their continued economic growth is migration and my progressive migration policies welcoming uh, people who will fill uh, gaps in the labor force. This is not, these are not factors that play out in short electoral cycles. So, but if this conversation is well anchored in public and in informed public opinion um, uh, uh, venues, it will make it easier, I think, for uh, political decision makers, because that's what we're talking about now. Policy analysts have to inform that, and public opinion has to be mobilized to support the longer-term agenda. And the longer-term agenda, there's only one message there. Not only migration is here to stay, in absolute numbers, it's here to grow, even if the proportions of human population on the move remain the same, because there's just going to be more people on Earth. And it has to be in everybody's interest that human mobility be better managed than it is today. And, and in the context of the, the short-term uh, electoral concerns that individual politicians in individual countries might have, that there is the issue which you you said it was a digression and it was a side issue, but the semantics and the language surrounding this debate are clearly critical in the context of the politics as well. If you if you have politicians whose whose sole purpose in trying to get elected the next time is to tap into a rhetoric and use of language that is potentially corrosive and damaging to public debate, how do you how do you challenge that? Well, I think first of all, you expose it for what it is. Uh, you say that the expression, for instance, just the shift we've seen already, as I said, from illegal migrant to irregular, or in some cases, undocumented migrants. I think you, when you see the term, there, at every opportunity we have to push back and, ex and explain how, I mean, the analogy I've often used is, if uh, somebody doesn't fill their income tax report in time, we don't say this is an illegal taxpayer. Right? We, we have to bring home the fact that, and also that irregularity or illegality comes in multiple forms. By choosing the expression that is the most pejorative, we validate a perception, for instance, that irregular migrants are all people who use smugglers and crash borders and so on, when in fact, and again, I, I don't have numbers, but I, I'm prepared to guess that overall, most people in irregular situations have actually entered a country perfectly lawfully, but then have extended the term of their stay beyond what, what was permitted in their visa, for instance. So it obscures 
a reality. So we have to be alive to this invidious use of ter terminology and push back. Ratna, let me turn to you. And, and uh, Louise was talking a, a, a lot about the way in which policy makers can inform politicians. And, and you've just come back from discussing migration policy at the World Economic Forum. What do you think should be the role of the private sector when it comes to concerns of global migration? Thank you, and thank you, Marta, for having me here. Uh, because you mentioned the World Economic Forum and Dubai, uh, I want to tell you that nowhere else in the world uh, that I have been, and I travel a lot, have I seen close up and personal the very close relationship between the prosperity of a nation, which is Dubai, and migration. Migration is everywhere in this city-state. Um, and I'm not a proponent for their migration system. It creates its own inequalities um, and its own abuses. But it's very clear to me when I, when I look at that uh, place, which is creating a new financial center, a new banking center, a new vacation spot for people who don't feel welcome anymore here, but they feel perfectly welcome there. It seems to me that migration is at the heart of business development, job creation, and economic prosperity. Um, so the question is not why we should bring business into the conversation, but how. And here there are a couple of challenges, I believe, around the global compact for migration and just generally around issues of migration. There's a certain amount of toxicity involved because one that one tends to focus on the smaller numbers of irregularities as opposed to, you know, the large flows of regular migration, people who come in, you know, with visas, with permission, who's, who become citizens or not, as the question uh, may be. Um, business tends to stay away, I believe, uh, from conversations where there are toxic issues of, of public policy. And if, it, if they want to participate at all, it will not be in forum like fora like these. It will be behind closed doors. So I, I've, I've worked a lot with business in Canada, and I am impressed with how much you can do with business behind closed doors. I'd also like to say that <clears throat> it's a mistake to talk to business from the point of view of corporate social responsibility. The minute you bring that cadre of, uh, of business to the table to talk about migration, you've already lost the game. You need to talk to people in the C-suite, not in the CSR uh, um, realm, because it, it somehow uh, uh, brings it down to a charitable impulse as opposed to the real impulse, which is business imperative. Imperatives. So I've, you have to persuade them about the profit you have, you have margin. To you have to persuade them, and you have to work with them. Uh, I've had some significant success in Canada, at first in persuading big corporations to hire immigrants with credentials which they didn't quite get. But where I've had greater success is in changing their hiring practices, in helping them change how they hire, uh, which is the sound of both hands clapping because I come from a country where, you know, we have a lot of uh, immigration. We put a lot of e effort into integrating immigrants. I think we need to put as much effort into changing whole society as well. So when you try and do that, it works a little better. I'm 
concern, though, about uh, one factor, which is um, by bringing business uh, to the table, as I hope the Global Compact will, uh, and there are ambassadors, there are champions, a few of them, Facebook, Giovanni, etc., etc. Uh, we have a business leader in Canada who has called out uh, to our government to take our population of 35 million to 100 million by the turn of the century. And the only way we can do it is through migration. So there are a, a few people. I am concerned that when you bring business to the table, business must benefit but so must the migrant. And I'm, I, I'd be a little nervous and concerned about that. And as I think about business uh, and who is at the table or not at the table, I think it's worthwhile noting that we must have universities and colleges at the table as significant stakeholders. They are significant importers and exporters of people and knowledge and students and professors and the pathways of regular migration or immigration, whatever you may choose to call it, to these institutions is fraught uh, with challenges, delays, made more so now uh, by what is happening uh, in parts of the world, which uh, I will be political enough not to name. Uh, so I, I, I think it is important uh, to have business at the table in the right conditions, with the right people, but with the right intent. Okay. Uh, Emma Bonino, let's, uh, let's turn to you in, in Rome. Um, clearly, we saw in 2015 the, the crisis hitting the shores of, of Europe. I, I wonder to what extent you think that a global compact will help a more comprehensive European response. There was, there was clearly division as to how Europe could respond collectively back in 2015. And Italy has, has uh, taken the, the, the real brunt of, of dealing with migration in large numbers. What, what do you think a global compact would, would do in the context of, say, the European Union? I think it's important, first of all, because... At this point, when a global compact will be approved, um, we, the activists in some member states, uh, will feel less alone. Uh, and we, feel, uh, we will feel more supported uh, by the international community than we are now, in which, out of perception again, and I will be back to this point, which is very important, at least in my country, um, through the media, normally, uh, we are depicted as a sort of a visionaries or, I don't know, uh, somebody living on the moon when there is a, a reality and the reality is elections, for instance, or, or the fear, uh, of so-called the fear of the, of the population. Um, so for us, it's very important, both in the substance and in the message that it will spread. And we will feel stronger and supported, not only by our ideals or whatever you want to call it, um, but in our policy that we are practically pushing. And, if, uh, and this is so important because over and over again, when I campaign in Italy, even if the campaign, I was a, a foreigner, has been very successful because without any institutional support 
except the mayors, lots of mayors, supported this campaign. We managed to collect 100,000 legal signatures on a proposal uh, of uh, law. But again, the, when you go out and talking to people to collect signatures, which is very different from pushing a click and the digital signature, you have to go out with a table and people come to sign or you engage with them. Uh, the most important obstacle is uh, perception and lies. For instance, in my country, we have 8% of immigrants, uh, uh, regular, plus, which makes five to six million out of a, of a country out of 60 million. Plus, we have the real problem, which is 500,000 irregular migrants or non-documented migrants, but we call them clandestine. And we have even invented a crime, a crime of clandestinity. Nobody knows what it is, but uh, reality, but that is the point. And this clandestine, which are simply non-documented, as Luis said, many of them were totally regular before the visa expired and they were not able to renew the visa, for instance, for several reasons, uh, are 500,000, 600,000. Of course, these people, which are irregular, uh, don't have a proper uh, job. Uh, they, they are in the black labor market with all the, the pressure that that means for them, or just to survive, you, the, many of them uh, uh, go to micro-criminalities. Uh, the big criminality is run by Italian, by the way. Um, no, that, that's, uh, let's be clear. Um, uh, but they are used as uh, workers of this uh, network um, or, or other kind of uh, prostitution, for instance, which is not prostitution. Uh, I would not shy to call it slavery because this lady coming from Nigeria, they are robbed of documents, they have nothing, they have to pay back what the family anticipated to the smuggler. So basically, they, it's a sort of slavery, it's not a sort of uh, prostitution. So perception is the most important thing. When you say to people, how many uh, foreigners we have in Italy? The, the, the result is well from 30 to 40 percent. Yeah, it's 8 percent. Uh, and so uh, and you go on and on on uh, any sort of stereotyping. Typically, they steal our job, which is definitely not true. We are sector of economy in Italy, such as agriculture, construction, um, aid, uh, home aid. Uh, and care for for old people or children who uh, no Italian wants to do anymore. And without migrants and working migrants, this sector of the economy will simply close. This is not because I say it, but the final research of the business community and other official research center proves exactly that. Italy, as an, like Spain, Portugal, Germany, Bulgaria, as an extraordinary ordinary demographic decline. 
and and on top of that, rightly so, 100,000 Italian left Italy uh, uh, the past year for better job or for living abroad or for whatever it is. So the calculation for us is that just to keep the balance in the working force, uh, we would need 160,000 new people per year in the next 10 years, right? So this is the reality. But the perception is different. Recently, there has been a wave of rape. Automatically, the rape was done by migrants. Automatically. Now, recently, uh, it has been exposed to to the world that violence or rape uh, on women has a quite a white face. Hmm? Uh, many outstanding uh, white, uh, uh, very uh, well-known people. So maybe this stereotype of a mig rapist migrants uh, will uh, uh, will uh, um, reduce um, uh, uh, at least in this moment. So, but you go on and on, and so why we are reacting, uh, proposing, proposing, uh, starting with Louise's point that uh, that migration is here to stay, and is even here to to grow, uh, and well-ordered migration can be an asset for the economy, and it is already, in Italy, eight percent of the foreigners uh, produce nine percent of the GDP. They are net contributors to the welfare system because most of them uh, go back to their own country without transferring, because it's forbidden for the moment, any kind of the investment they have done to the, uh, to the, wel to the welfare state uh, when legally working needed. Finally, uh, I would just want to add something that Louise pointed out. Um, now it's very popular in Italy, let's help them, chez uh, eux, let's help them in Africa, hmm? uh, which is very good. And you talk to somebody who made such a campaign early in the 80s, simply believing that if we were not interested in Africa, sooner or later Africa will be interested in Europe for evident reason. The demographic explosion is enormous, as uh, in the Mediterranean, uh, Sahel, and so on and so forth. And so there is no quick fix development policy that can solve this issue next year. So even if we are prepared to do a better development assistant, uh, et cetera, et cetera, it will take at least a few generations. And it will be it will the, the responsibility of good governance. Nigeria is not a poor country. Uh, at all. It's a country which is badly managed, politically speaking. So the, the question of poverty is the uh, result of a, bad, of a bad policy. Only a final white last point on demography. I strongly believe that there is no miracle solution, but that investing and empowering women is one of the way to go forward to reduce, let's say. So um, there is a study by OXE that was published last year uh, uh, that simply says that reducing 
um, uh, the, the child marriage and promoting girls staying in school and getting married at 20, etc., we reduce the population uh, uh, by 10%. Simply because early marriage, if you married a, 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 a girl at 12, of course she will leave school, of course she will have the chances or the obligation to make more children and so on and so forth. So investing in women in their rights and in their empowerment is not a miracle solution, but not only it is just and fair, but it's also effective. Thank you. Emma, thank you very much. Um, brilliantly uh, illustrating not just the, the kind of political situation and the social situation in Italy, but also widening it out. Marta, let's, uh, let's get you to help us uh, at least understand the kind of global dynamics that are at play here. How do you think that, that this global compact can make a difference on, on national policies and, and development and, and migration? Um, thank you, Razia and everybody, for um, uh, this um, interesting discussion. Let me um, reflect a little bit on what Louise said about the potential of the global compact to finally get right the relationship between migration and development and in turn inform national, you know, national policies on global development in, in ways that can be um, sort of conducive to safe and orderly migration. The first thing I would say is that, and is, is a personal reflection, is that the, the, the development community, and, and I mean by that the, the people, the actors, the ideas around this global effort to try to bring actually prosperity and, um, and social and economic development to all, um, has been very slow at, um, and, and has been not particularly effective at uh, engaging with the debate on migration. And in fact, it took, you know, it took the, the 2015 crisis, the so-called crisis in Europe, to realize that there was a problem on our shores and therefore that you know, in, the, you know, in the migration um, field we needed to um, you know, quickly, uh, quickly catch up. And we at ODI have been at the forefront of being, you know, trying to see that coming and trying to engage in an, at an early stage. But there's always been a bit of a mystery to me of why, given those relationships, this, this deep interconnection between people moving and, you know, and development outcomes for themselves, for their communities, for their host communities, why, as policy analysts and as activists and as NGOs, have not, we've not started to engage with that reality um, sooner. And one reason, and, is, and, and I think it's important to recognize it, is because it does put all of us in a slightly, you know, slightly outside the comfort zone of what we understand with global development. And something similar, I think, has happened around some of the climate change debates, where a, a fairly traditional, well-established, in many ways criticized, but still very ingrained view of development, which entails that Nigeria is a poor country, that the rich countries of the world need to help through aid, um, sits at odds with this notion that you know, once you help people at home by you know, supporting economic and social development, surely they're going to be happy and stay, whereas guess what, they move. Um, and that was, you know, that was the, for, for a long time, that was a, you know, both a, a re, you know, the, the evidence has been crystal clear about the, the causality of that relationship, and yet it was, I think, a difficult reality for the community, so to speak, to, to deal with because it did put us in a different place around how do we think about the relationship between, between different countries of the world. And it's definitely an area, a dynamic, where a world divided into developed and developing, rich and poor, donor and recipient, really doesn't help to explain you know, the, the, the dynamics that plays. It's fundamentally 
a phenomenon, a dynamic of mutuality, where people move, they leave a country, they, you know, they transit through a number of countries, they have journeys, they then go to a destination countries that typically then is also a country for movement again, and that brings the dynamic of international development to life in ways that I think in the community we're not always been as good as we could have been to pick up, talk about, and then finally think about how to use wisely the power, the money, the ideas uh, to make a difference. And that led to, I think, a particular problem that we do have now. We do have that problem in Italy, which in Italy, sort in Europe, um, Emma has touched on it, which is that, you know, the political landscape is such, and is there is an interesting combination of where we are with public discourse and public perceptions about aid and ring fencing aid budgets, which is the traditional mechanisms whereby rich countries sort of give money to poorer countries to develop, um, being used, you know, yes, for, you know, with good intention to mitigate, to address some of the root causes of migration. But that has very quickly turned into, as you said earlier, Vazia, too, into a public debate or, you know, a, 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 you know, a political expedient message around let's, you know, let's give them aid um, so that they stay at home. And some of it has gone into, you know, with the discussions being held around kind of using um, migration and sort of border control as conditions for aid. Um, there is the controversial European Trust Fund for Africa that has some elements of that. And I think that is a problem. And we, sh we need, and, and, and it's something that Louise and I have discussed before, and it would be a big challenge for the Global Compact to get that right, because we need to be explicit about not just the fact that, that that's not true, or the fact there is no proof that's the case, that aid doesn't work, but there is a fundamental you know, problem with establishing a, a relationship between countries that I think with migration becomes mutual and, re and reciprocal with money being attached to people, you know, to migration policies, meaning that people are not, um, you know, are not allowed to move uh, or not, you know, particularly not allowed to move our way. They're, you know, perfectly happy to help them move in, in the neighborhood. Um, so that that is um, so that is unfortunately a, a, you know one way of interpreting this this potential relationship, which I think is incredibly positive, um, and one thing to be done. And and a global compact is an incredible opportunity to get this right. Is to clarify that people moving has effects as well as costs and, ch and has challenges as well as benefits in relation to a variety of development outcomes, right? Is, you know, if you are serious about achieving universal health coverage for your population in any country of the world, both extending that coverage to migrant populations, but also having a policy that allows health workers from different countries to contribute to that endeavor are part and parcel of what it is you're trying to achieve. And to really articulate the reasoning behind how people moving has effects on different parts of development policies, the prosperity and the well-being of us all, rather than being, a, you know, something that is fundamentally attached to a policy that is, you know, is, is um, tailored to people living in, in low-income countries. I mean, on that, I must admit, I am encouraged by what I'm picking up in the process of the Global Compact for Migration, partly because a number of countries are around the table who know that, who have frankly sick and tired of a certain rhetoric around how the world powers work and have a real stake themselves in managing their stock and flows, um, as, as Luis put at the beginning. Think of Mexico, think of Turkey, things of Morocco, where, you know, countries where people come, where people go, that, you know, that really have a, an interest in, in having a policy fit for purpose for their you know, for their own development policies and prosperity. So I am, you know, as much as this debate can be, can look very dominated by the political realities of Europe and the US, I think one big advantage of the UN 
um, mechanics and, and negotiations that it truly brings you know the powers of different parts of the world around the table for what you know is likely to be a serious political negotiations. Finally, if there is another mistake that we have made in the development community on on this um, on on this um, topic, and we are working very hard to correct and get right, is that. We've relied too much on the very clear evidence around the economic benefits of migration. There are, it's fascinating, is an area where most economists in the world agree that there is very clear evidence that migration benefits um, you know, um, populations and countries in terms of growth, in terms of, you know, in terms of income for migrants, in terms of you know, level of, um, of prosperity of, somebody, of the host communities. And yet we have found, you know, work we've done at ODI, but increasingly elsewhere, we've talked about lies and perceptions, we found that, you know, drumming in the message that really, really has economic benefits to the people who are fundamentally worried and persuaded, who saw the images of people, those flows and those stocks, you know, coming their way on, on the screens every night in 2015, it just doesn't cut through. It's not only on its, you know, in and of itself is not going to make a difference. There is a, there is a need to to, to tailor that language is is not you know is not done between today and tomorrow. In, it needs to be a sustained engagement. It needs reasoning as much as facts, and critically, those facts need to go beyond the um, the economic um, benefits and realities, and need to take into account the the costs. And some of those costs, of course, are costs to do with social, you know, with with social issues, with you know you know people. Uh, you know, people's uh, perceptions about being uh, threatened. It's, you know, it's all very good to say that, you know, there is no way that migrants are stealing anybody's job in a country like the UK. But if you're experiencing a deprived part of the country is that, you know, you, yourself and your kids are struggling to find a job or you're struggling to get your kids into school and you see or you, you think you see, um, um, you know, others benefiting from that is something that we need to tackle head on. I, you know, obviously, the, there, is, there are limits of what, how much we can do in that space through issues around development policies. There are big, you know, we need to be careful about, you know, reinforcing it with, as I said, this idea of using aid as a solution, but nevertheless, ex making it explicit, explaining the relationship between people moving and development, social, economic, and cultural outcomes in different sphere is certainly um, an endeavor worth investing in. We're doing our bit of DI, and we're trying to bring a little bit the development community along because, as I said, We've been a bit slow in, in, in engaging. Let's open, uh, open it up to the floor for questions. Uh, do keep your questions brief. Tell us which organisation you're from. Um, and um, I'm, if you don't, if there's no hand going up immediately, I'm going to put a, a question online. We've got we've got an, an audience online as well. Uh, let me let me just put this question uh, to. Um, actually, let's let's put it to, to, to you, Louise, um, from uh, Gonzalo Fanjul. Uh, in what ways will the Global Compact for Migration address outright acts of oppression and slavery-like practices that affect migrants and refugees? Uh, the example um, that uh, Gonzalo uh, points out to is Libya, and uh, Emma, of course, mentioned uh, slavery in um, in Italy. But there have been reports in the last week or so uh, about Parts of parts of Libya actually being turned into a slave market, and I, and I wondered what 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 discussions or thoughts you've had about the global compact at least contributing to human rights. Well, there's there's a lot of there's a, a mixture of issues in there. Um, first of all, the, if we talk particularly about the situation of of Libya, 
it is obviously a migration issue. It's also in part a refugee issue, but it is essentially a lawlessness issue. I mean, this we are talking about people who are now trapped, prisoners actually held in detention centers in an environment in which there's essentially no rule of law to speak of. So that these kinds of outrageous abuses, such as people actually being sold as slaves, are coming to the surface, frankly, should not be surprising, and we should brace ourselves. I think when access is given to a lot of the camps in Libya that have, to now, as far as I know, not been accessible to anybody, frankly, I think we're going to see even, even worse um, uh, scenarios. This is the reality, I think, of people being, and we could explore the reasons why they're trapped in that situation. Um, you know, Libya was historically a huge country of destination for migrant workers across Africa. They are migratory routes that lead people there. There are people who are now in Libya who've been on the road for years getting there. So this is not just a sudden, oh my God, we can all get to Europe. Many of them were just going to Libya. Uh, to work. So it's its own um, situation. To come to the question, what will the global compact do? I don't think we can expect this. Uh, this will be an agreement between states and essentially an agreement to cooperate. I think what we can expect is a recognition of the need to have a much, much better sort of international policy framework to deal with large movements of, and I would say, of non-refugees or of mixed populations that are in part refugees, but not exclusively. I think the first wave, if I could use it awful terminology, of migration, say in 2015, coming into Europe mostly from Syria, was mostly a refugee population in which they were also non-refugee uh, migrants, who many of whom would make an asylum claim because there's no other legal pathway for them to enter and would fail, thereby creating this huge so-called return uh, problem. The population coming through Libya now is the reverse. It's a population that is largely non-refugees, that is, people who will not succeed in making an asylum claim under the Refugee Convention because I don't want to say all of them, but I think a large number, if not the vast majority, are not fleeing persecution as understood by the convention. And for them, we currently have no framework. And the proper framework, first, is a humanitarian response that is completely indifferent to migratory status. When you pull people out of a boat, it shouldn't matter whether you think or you're right in thinking that this is a refugee or this is not a refugee. So the needs should be the sole consideration in saving lives the absolute priority. Step two is the determination of migratory status because those who are refugees have clear-cut entitlements that should be met immediately. But then we're going to be left with a large number of people for whom currently the only the response is return. Well, the reality is, if this was so clear, why are they all in detention camps in Libya? It's because, I think, return in many cases, even though it's the only so-called legal option, is just not viable. 
They don't want to go back. In many cases, their countries of origin will not facilitate their return by issuing travel documents. And in a lot of cases, it's not a viable option for a variety of reasons. They may not be refugees, but they may have been abused along the way. There's all kinds of circumstances. And so being stuck in these unsustainable transit position, which become almost permanent by default, particularly in detention, I think has to be confronted as not a model that we can sustain, even less so promote. So there has to be, at this point, it would not be a legally binding outcome, but in the same way that we have initiatives for uh, victims of natural disasters, we have to be able to call on third countries without jeopardizing their obligations to resettle refugees, but to also open pathways um, to get these people out of that predicament. And on this, I should add that these arguments that um, if you treat pe people well, it will induce a floodgate of abusers is, again, it's, it, this is a purely ideological uh, statement. We know that from many, many uh, other areas of law. I've worked a large part of my life in the criminal law environment. Um, and ideas about deterrence and inducement, in some specific cases, you can measure the, the deterrent or the incentive that a particular policy will create. But to suggest that if you pull people out of misery in transit camps in Libya today, all of Africa will come knocking on the doors is absurd, is completely absurd. You need a microphone, sorry. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jenna Holliday. I'm an independent gender and migration specialist. Um, it's great to be here today. Thank you. Um, the question is for Louise, but also for the rest of the uh, panel, Razia, as you see fit. But I wanted to... Um, I wanted to talk about gender in terms of we understand that care and unpaid labor is fundamental to gender equality, both in structural terms, direct, indirect terms. Um, we also know that the migration for development model is very heavily gendered in terms of drivers, experiences, and outcomes. And as we've heard today, migration isn't going away and is a fundamental part of global dynamics. Um, so I just wanted to know what role you think the Global Compact can play in contributing to our global project towards gender equality? Well, I can... I, I hope that the Global Compact will be responsive to these ideas. I can tell you that the Secretary General's report, which will contribute, which we're in the process of putting together, which is one of the inputs alongside the, the member states' consultation <coughs> to the, the Global Compact, will take a very clear position on the necessity to have gender-specific uh, migration policies. Again, talk about perceptions and myths and stereotypes. The general perception is that a migrant is a young man who is either a burden or a threat. I mean, to capture that in a nutshell. The reality, as I'm sure you know, is 48% of migrants are women and girls, and they their contribution to the workforce, again, in remittances, uh, women, con even though they earn less money than men, they contribute a larger portion of their income to remittances. The empowerment of women, I think it's important to talk of the vulnerabilities of women, particularly in transit and in countries of uh, destination, when they work in sectors where they're often very isolated in home care, 
for instance, but it's also really important to talk about the agency of women and the empowerment of women. For instance, again, talk of language, this is not exclusive to migration, but the expression women and children always as a category in contrast to men in this field in particular has to be, again, unpacked. Women have vulnerabilities. They're not children. They have, but they also have a lot of things much more in common with men than with groups that are otherwise find themselves in. They find themselves in vulnerable situations, but they're not vulnerable per se. So I think we're going to see a global compact that at least is going to propel us towards a much more gender-specific series of national, regional, and global uh, migration policies, both in terms of agency and empowerment of women and addressing their specific vulnerabilities. Ratna, do you want to say something about this? Just uh, two quick points. Uh, I come from a country where our prime minister has declared himself to be a feminist prime minister. Our foreign aid policy is a feminist foreign aid policy. Our, um, our global affairs are conducted through that lens. Uh, I'm hopeful that the global compact for migration may lead us to think about a feminist immigration policy. We do not have uh, uh, deliberate intentional, embedded feminist agendas in our immigration policy. We have outcomes that we can disaggregate one way or another. Uh, so I'm hoping it, it can actually further the feminist agenda in our country. I will add a word of caution. We've heard uh, quite a bit around uh, uh, the issue of healthcare and aging uh, uh, and, and the, the need for healthcare workers in Western and North American countries to look after uh, the elderly because no one else is there to do that. I'm able to be here because I have two wonderful women at home looking after my mother. But let me be clear, those are very vulnerable work situations, and I'm hoping that the Global Compact for Migration will address the particular vulnerabilities faced by women who work in the private residences of their employers without having the authority in some countries, as we know, to change employers. These are very, very difficult issues. On the one hand, we need them. On the other hand, we must not exploit them. They must have their rights as well. Thank you very much. Uh, let, let's, uh, we, we've already touched on, on some national issues, but, but I want to now focus a little bit more on, on them. Um, uh, Emma Bonino, let's, uh, let, let's talk uh, a, a little bit about the way in which you would expect the, the global compact to, to actually shape the way that perhaps Italy, but also again collectively, the, the, the European Union might be able to uh, benefit in the way in which they can now respond or will in the future be able to respond to, to migration? Um, I expect much, uh, very much from this global compact, as I said at the beginning, because that can help us to change uh, the, the narrative and the perception. Um, but uh, uh, again, uh, um, then you need to go national. You need and that is the role uh, of the, the national civil society or whatsoever, to translate the global compact into a national responsibility so that it doesn't remain, let's say, 
uh, in the air. But to implement it nationally, we need to to reinforce our political pressure. Now, for took it, take Italy. Italy, we apparently are going to election in Mar- in March. Germany will have uh, some fragility in the next uh, few months. Um, and then, uh, and evidently, this item uh, of uh, uh, migrants will be at the top of the electoral agenda, um, mostly from the wrong side. Hmm? Uh, we, we have in my country the, the one who are strictly, uh, evidently, racist. Uh, they just have to go home. They go home, full stop. Then you have the other who are more moderate in the vocabulary, but in the substance are saying the same thing. And uh, if we don't find the courage to counteract bluntly to these lies, and we just moderate a little bit our language, uh, we, are, we have lost already. Uh, if we don't manage to steer a rational or even emotional debate uh, on this kind of issue, the mainstream is already done. So I see the Global Compact as a tool of support to put it straight, uh, the, the, the issue, which is complex. We don't have to make the mistake of simplifying the issue and saying what can easily be uh, be be uh, dealt with. No, uh, it's a complex issue, which means that it needs a complex solution. Uh, it's not a, a miracle, a miracle issue. But for instance, uh, underlying the good practices is a very effective way. When we manage, for instance, we have a system in Italy which is integration of small groups in in cities. It's a two migrants for 1,000 local. Hmm? And it works perfectly. The limit is, first of all, that the law does not foresee any legal entrance. Um, And the second is that only 1,000 mayors out of 8,000 in my country have accepted this scheme. So the 1,000 who have accepted have a wonderful experience. And exposing this experience, it's very, very important. But the limit is that, like in Europe, many countries said, no, we don't want resettlement, et cetera. And in Italy, 7,000 mayors simply say, we simply don't want them, punto. Don't want them the regular, because the regular ones are already in their firm in, in uh, their agriculture firm, are already there in their own home. So what we have to settle is this, uh, uh, let's say, how do you call it, uh, irregular. Luisa, what is the best word? Would you call them non-documented, irregular? How do you, would you forgive? Because we call them clandestine, <laughs> because we have <laughs> Uh, we have a crime of clandestinity. Nobody knows what it is, hoping that we will not reach the crime of poverty. Um, but uh, we have a crime called the clandestinity. But what is the best uh, the best vocabulary? Irregular? Undocumented? 
What would you say, Louise? Well, I think we've been using irregular. Um, I suppose undocumented is even a, a more um, well, sort yeah. of, yeah, it, it may be better, but in I think the convention now is the word irregular is what's been used for the most part, which I think is okay. It's, it's not as pejorative as mm. criminal being the worst or illegal. Right. Clandestine is pretty in. bad. I want to talk about language. I'm very taken, Madam Arbor, by your deconstruction of the way language leads us to think about people and situations in a, in, in a certain way. And I, I, I believe that language shapes ideas and gives uh, and is a reflection of our values. And I'll remind all of us in this room that, that there was a time when women were called ladies. And when we stopped being ladies and became women, it shifted everybody's perception of ourselves. I think the Global Compact for Migration is an opportunity to change the lexicon and to change the language. And I'm not involved in your consultations, but I do hope that some, at some point you're able to bring together a bunch of anthropologists and musicians and rap artists and poets <laughs> to sort of say, what should the new language be? Uh, I'm, I'm tired of the words skilled immigrant, which implies everybody else is unskilled. That's not true. I, I'm looking more to words like global talent. Everybody has talent, and we come from everywhere. We've been successful in Canada over, I think it took us 10 years, to shift the language from foreign-trained immigrant with all the pejorative images that go wrong with the word foreign to internationally trained immigrant. And now it is embedded in all our language and legislation and policy. And I think this is a wonderful opportunity for the Global Compact to suggest new language which might be uncomfortable in the beginning, but over time we'll get used to. I mean, beyond the issue of, of language, and Ratna brings up the, 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 the skilled, unskilled uh, person. I mean, there is there is a, a move in in several countries to to talk about controlling migration in the context of well, we're very happy to have skilled people, but we're yeah. less happy to have unskilled. I, I wonder if you could just reflect on that. Yes. Well, in fact, I think in a sense, in some cases, it's worse than that. We attract skilled people and then we underemployed them. So we attract people with diplomas and then we tell them, well, you're going to have to drive a taxi for until you can re-qualify, which may be never, or especially in the professional field, uh, in law, certainly, where you need local certification. So the question of skills, again, in that a lot of the language is invidious about low skill and, and high skill workers. The reality, whatever the language is, is that the, the preference for opening legal pathways only at the skilled levels, that is professional, particularly in the tech industry or in healthcare, obscures again the reality that there is a very high demand for people who, as Emma put it, are prepared to take jobs that, that native populations are not prepared to do. And they were, I read something recently in the United States, for instance, that the, the jobs that go to particularly undocumented foreign workers, because there's no legal pathways for, for them to be recruited, are jobs uh, that go to people who don't speak English. 
so in again uh, garbage collection and so on where because the bottom of the line is where you have no communications with anyone no language skills by these jobs being filled by migrant workers it frees up people who have virtually no education all they have basically is they speak english to get the next level jobs in the fast food industry and so on where you don't need a lot of education or skills, but at least you need to be able to communicate. This is the reality, and this is where you don't see a, a lot of national policies prepared to recognize that there is this labor market um, demand, and very conveniently let it be filled in the informal economies by poor people in our countries and by migrant workers, which puts them in very vulnerable situation, but and there's no reason why these should not be turned into legal pathways and that part of the economy being formalized. Having said that, in developed countries, the informal economy can occupy, in some cases, as much as 20% of the economy. In other parts of the world, the informal economy is 85% of the economy. So again, in the global compact, we need to have language and, and promote ideas that makes sense. For me to argue that all informal economies should be transformed into formal ones tomorrow, it may make sense in Europe to say, you know, you should address that, the fact that you have a labor black market. And it's very convenient because it keeps the prices down. The only ones who pay the price are the workers who are exploited. But for consumers, it's a good thing. But that discourse doesn't make any sense if I'm talking to countries where their, most of their economy is informal. So the, the spirit, I think, of the Global Compact is going to be to facilitate things that make sense regionally and nationally throughout the world by projecting a vision that rule of law is imperative, but then we're not all at the same space in this. Uh, there's a hand that's going up there. I wonder if we can get a microphone. Oh, great, perfect. Uh, uh, Eric Berglott, uh, London School of Economics. So... So um, we can understand that a compact is, is very helpful to try to bring some order into a lot of other sort of compacts that are struck around the world. And particularly if you think about the EU, you have the Turkey deal, you have deals, some of them actually clandestine using <laughs> Emma's uh, terminology. You know, how, how do you see sort of the connection between a global compact and getting some order into these deals that are being struck and getting some transparency around these deals. What, what can be done? And, and, and of course, the EU has a, has a role here somehow. Well, you've given examples of deals that may be not entirely transparent and somewhat problematic. Or I thought that was the trust of your question. I think, in a sense, the Global Compact is going to want to uh, invest as close to the ground as possible. So recognize that, first of all, that the bulk of migration is domestic, and we're not dealing with either internally displaced people, the kind of refugees internally, or the people who move uh, inside their own country. So, but as soon as we get to border crossing, we're talking about mobility that is increasingly south-south, so it's very regional, and therefore, I think the compact is going to want to encourage that, to encourage... Um, international support the, through the UN, for instance, for the management of human mobility 
the way we find it, which is mostly local and regional. What it's going to do, I think the deals, the so-called deals you were, there are lots of kinds of deals. Huh? In, uh, 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 For instance, in the Philippines would make government-to-government agreement with some of the Gulf countries to manage sectorial um, um, labor force. So you'll have you know, 130,000 nurses going to a Gulf country on the basis of a bilateral agreement between the government of the Philippines or Bangladesh or Indonesia. And some of these are actually very good providers, if they're well done, of guarantees of some uh, oversight of the conditions in which these domestic workers who are now working abroad but are expected to return will be treated. So I think the, I, the, the deals that you were referring to are mostly to anticipate, deal with, or prevent large movements of populations. So I think we have to... We are not on the eve of an expansion, I think, of a legal regime to deal with forced displacement writ large. I mean, in a sense, the Refugee Convention deals with one form of forced displacement, people who didn't choose to have to leave their country, but now climate change, extreme poverty, there's a whole range of circumstances that are triggering forced displacement for which we currently don't have a legally binding instrument. I hope the compact will have something to say about better management practices to anticipate, prevent, again, through opening legal channels, to ease the pressure that leads to forced displacement of large numbers all in one or all of a sudden. I, I know there are hands going up in here, but I just want to be fair to the people who are also online. I'm just going to take one question from online and then two from the audience, and then we're going to wrap up because we're, we're running out of time. Th this one, I think, is, isn't directed at you, Marta, but since you were talking about the relationship between development and, and migration, Nina is asking, what would be the morally right thing for NGOs to do when we have the possibility of receiving development funds which are clearly targeted at addressing the root cause of migration and will therefore help address poverty, but at the same time will advance the developed in countries' agenda of keeping migrants out? Thank you. Um, well, you have to be very hard-nosed about it. I would say, and we had that conversation at the DI because there is a parallel, you know, there is a familiar situation there where we are asked to, you know, to contribute, to provide evidence and analysis to prove the you know, the, 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 this link between um, uh, aid and migration in terms of aid reducing irregular migration by, you know, by reducing poverty overseas. So, um, so you need to be very hard-nosed and honest about it. And I do think that, you know, it, it is, for, as I said earlier, I think there is a number of actors of which, of which NGOs are ones that have either avoided or not necessarily engaged in the right way in this debate by, in a way, fueling the, you know, the, the, the easy rhetoric around helping poor people where they are so that they can thrive, um, you know, in their own circumstances. I recognize that fundamental reality about people movement as part of what development is about. So the minute that's clear in your strategies, I mean, you recognize the interlinkages between moving and movement and development, then there's all sorts of possibilities about designing and contributing to development initiative and programs that are conducive to that relationship. Um, and some of which can also be related to, for example, being what, you know, what is possible to do in relation to root causes. But be, you know, honest and realistic is the first step. Is I think is the, sort of the accepting the money. Then, as always, is a hard-nosed decisions about 
um, uh, what you uh, what you do. But let me, on these issues of development, let me also say one final thing, which is that I think we need to recognize both some, some of the limits of what the global compact uh, of migration will have in terms of its power to change things, including to change narrative. And one of the limitations, which it has also, as usual, the other side being also its potential strength, is that it is very much a global framework. And as we've heard, it's not going to be legal, it's going to be negotiated. But if we get this right, and it's going to be an enabling, you know, an enabling document and framework, then it will then unleash the potential of all sorts of actors to you know, to, um, you know, to work from in their specific context. My proposition is that as much as migration policies are the ultimate realm of sovereign states and national level policymaking, the real deal, the real potential, the real difference also lies at what can be done locally. Mayors have been mentioned by Emma before, and there is actually uh, quite a lot of energy at the moment around the recognition that mayors as politicians and as potentially politicians in the making in the national stage. We, you know, in Italy, we've certainly seen one recently who's graduated from being a mayor to being a prime minister. So mayors can play a key difference. Cities are fundamental spaces for migration. But that's not the only way. I mean, local development, local markets, you know, rural economies and, you know, in the, in the landlocked parts of Italy that desperately needs new injection of, you know, of, um, of, of skills and migrations could be an example. But to really you know, to think about coalitions, actors, you know, needs, necessities, and actual powers at play at the local level where some of these meaningful solution um, can be, you know, can be found, discovered, and implemented. Not, those cannot be, in, you know, they cannot be written in in the global compact. But if we get the global compact right in terms of language, in terms of alignments, in terms of, you know, a power structure where, you know, different countries of the world start to, you know, play a different role in, in determining the, 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 the limits, you know, the boundaries of this debate, then that local action, I think, can go quite a long way in changing perceptions and, and innovating in, in practice. One question here in the front. Can we um, get a microphone? Don't fight over it. <laughs> um, yeah, this was a question for Louise Arbor. <clears throat> um, in following the thematic sessions of the, on the um, Global Compact for Migration, it seemed that the co-facilitators co really stressed that uh, the thematic sessions to date were an information sharing um, exercise to really understand migration. Um, and they seemed very intent on making sure that it was also a trust-building exercises between states so that given it's such a political issue within states, you know, even at a multilateral level, it could be properly addressed. Could we hear your thoughts on how successful, I realize it's just about to enter the stock um, taking stage, but how successful that's been? Actually, I think it's been very successful on both accounts, on the trust building uh, base, uh, and also on educating ourselves collectively and advancing some of these ideas. You have to understand, this will be negotiated in New York. You know, you, a lot of it is, is just this UN format. It will be negotiating, therefore, by what are called the permanent representatives, essentially the ambassadors of the various countries to the United Nations in New York. The real expertise in migration is much more based in Geneva, because it's the diplomats in Geneva that deal more regularly with UNHCR, IOM, ILO, the Office of Human Rights, a lot of the actors who deal with migrations, and then UNODC, Drugs and Crime, is in Vienna. So 
part of the exercise was also to engage, to entice, to sensitize the New York diplomatic community uh, to take ownership of that issue. And you would be very surprised how sometimes there's a very profound disconnect in individual member states between Geneva, New York, and really their capital. And within their capital, migration is very challenging because it doesn't always, it's a whole of government issue. So some countries have a department of immigration, but the reality is the migration issue is, is very central to the Ministry of Labor, Home Affairs, uh, health in some cases, if even in addition to foreign affairs and immigration, if there is one. So mobilizing all that, it took the six months of these consultations, I think, to sort of start getting the center of gravity in New York. And substantively, it's been, I think, quite an education. Uh, you know, six months ago when we were talking about the need to expand legal pathways, there was a lot of skepticism. Now, I think there's much more receptivity to the idea that we're talking here about international management of supply and demand in, lo in labor markets. And, but I, this brings me back to an observation that I think several has made. Uh, in fact, I think everybody has touched on that, and Marta maybe put it more strongly than anybody else, which is that the economic argument only gets you so far. And I think this is very true. But it gets you a long way in at least those who are um, sort of policy slash political decision makers. Then they have to worry about their popular public opinion, in which I agree entirely. I mean, on issues such as this one, and frankly, on issues, say, of nationalism and so on, the, eco the economic argument usually gets you nowhere. It's... When people feel very strongly about an issue, they're prepared to even pay a price to stick with their position, even if it's a position of prejudice and lack of enlightenment, or it comes from a dark uh, inner, it doesn't matter. The, so it seems to me that in the context of these next few years, we're going to have to do a lot of strategic advocacy addressing a multiplicity of audiences. Uh, a lot of political decision makers I mentioned earlier, a lot of them have never heard about the development impact and the economic impacts of migrations. We need to make that case. But elsewhere, in uh, municipalities, in communities, in public opinion, sometimes the arguments that work, I have to say, they don't work for me, but they do work, are more anecdotal, human stories, and so on. It's in that sense also that we need to change the narrative, not only talk to, to the, the economic side, but talk to the human appeal that migration has. It has been, certainly in Canada, successful on refugees, right? In, in building a, a kind of basic empathy for other human beings. It's, I believe it's more difficult in non-refugee migration because what the perception is that what propels people to move is not the desperation that you find in refugees, but it's essentially self-interest and greed in some cases. So we need to get a discourse, This again, this is not my specialty, but uh, that, that I think uh, builds on the better human sentiments that are needed to advance this agenda.
we, we are pretty much out of time, but I want to give each person on the panel the opportunity just to, to wrap up. Uh, Ratna, can I just start start with you? If you can be as, you know, maybe 45 seconds to a minute is what I'm going to limit you to. You know, as, as I listen to this debate, I'm struck by how different the reality in Canada is. You have mayors who say no to two migrants. We have mayors who come begging for immigrants because they're losing population. Say, I will say one thing, though, uh, that if the global compact on migration uh, can focus on legal pathways, on, on, on dispelling the myths, on linking to the sustainable development goals, um, it will help Canada and other countries in restoring public confidence in the system because public confidence in the system is what will turn uh, the needle at the sovereign national level. Emma Bonino, let's just final, final thoughts as briefly as you can. Yeah, no, first of all, I have to go, but uh, um, uh, <laughs> no, not really, it's late. Um, <laughs> My my final uh, my final point uh, is uh, endurance. Don't give up on this issue uh, and try to understand and to. Uh, only one thing I wanted to say to Luis uh, on this global compact, I'm sure that you will leave a lot of flexibility, uh, not prescription, but a lot of flexibility to different uh, member states how to best to deal with it. For instance, uh, I live in a country that has never, ever had an experience of immigration. We are perfectly experienced in immigration. But just to tell you something, my mother keeps saying me, I've never seen a black guy uh, in my life. Just to, to tell you what kind of country. So we have a lot of and I'm very effective when I talk to the Italian immigration, uh, so that people keeps in mind the history of his family is coming back. So also the, the question of a different narrative has to be adapted um, uh, to, to, to the national history and to the national uh, culture. It's not that you change the message. You simply adapt the message to have it more effective uh, in some uh, in different part in different parts of the world, that for me it's very very important. Emma Benino, thank you very much indeed for uh, taking part uh, here with us this morning. Um, do feel free to to go. <laughs> you clearly have <laughs> other meetings to attend to. Uh, Marta, just a final word from you before we we uh, end with Louise. My final word is first of all to thank all of you. To thank Louise in particular for uh, her, you know, for her generosity in sharing with us her insights, her wisdom uh, at this particular point in the negotiations. I'm left with. Uh, you know, what with a, uh, like a spark of optimism, specifically in relation to what Louise said just a few minutes ago about how different the conversation is around the options around legal pathways for migration. Um, if with this compact we've managed to actually move the needle, move the little bit the bar on something that until very recently was you know a red line, a no-go area, and if now there are some member states um, and some actors were keen to make the most of this fundamental reality that without legal pathways we cannot stand a chance of managing uh, or migration or have anything remotely you know uh, resembling an orderly process going I think that's uh, that's a that's a 
um, that's that's a very positive message to to leave the room with and where the the states of the negotiations at least begin from. Thank you. Louise Arbour, the last word for you. Uh, Endurance and flexibility is what you've been told from Italy. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I always take Emma's advice extremely seriously. (laughs) But one piece of advice from Emma that we heard early on, which I think is really also very critical, is when it comes to the unacceptable. There are perceptions out there that are not good, but we're not going to change everything overnight. But Perceptions that are publicly articulated, that are racist and xenophobic, I think need to be confronted, not accommodated. Every time we accommodate, we validate. And I think in this debate, uh, as we advance the economic arguments and so on, but when we have to deal with public perception, we should not accommodate uh, views that that need to be Uh, confronted in the course of the next few months, that's going to be really critical. Voila. (laughs) So only uh, leaves for me to say, Louise Alva, thank you very much indeed, Ratna, Marta and Emma Bonino. And uh, of course, thank you all very much for being here and everyone online. Thank you for taking part. Thanks. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.